You're tuned in to the Living Hero podcast at livinghero.com. Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and this episode of our program features a conversation with activist, author, and public educator Rick O'Barry. In his youth, he captured and trained dolphins, earning him a coveted job as trainer of the dolphins who played Flipper in the popular TV series. After a dolphin who played Flipper died in his arms, O'Barry began a 40-year mission of rescuing and protecting dolphins all over the world. In 1970, he founded the Dolphin Project and launched a campaign against the billion-dollar dolphin captivity industry, exposing what goes on behind the scenes. His passionate and often dangerous work is the subject of The Cove, this year's Academy Award winner for feature-length documentary film. Glad you're here to listen in. I saw The Cove recently and found it so moving. So for those who haven't seen this film yet, please talk about the lives and the capacities of dolphins in the wild. I'm glad you said in the wild because dolphins in the wild are very different than dolphins in captivity. Dolphins in the wild, for example, move around 40 miles a day doing different things. They are self-aware creatures that routinely make choices and decisions regarding the details of their life. In captivity, there are no decisions or choices. They become very different. This is because habitat dictates behavior. That's a given in science. And the uh, habitat of a captive dolphin is so artificial that they become artificial. Can you say more about how they are using sound out there in the oceans? That is their primary sense, uh, sound. Uh, our primary sense is light, vision. And dolphins uh, use sound to echolocate, and they use their sonar to catch fish and navigate in, at night. They can uh, literally see with the sonar. When we're in the water and the dolphins are sonaring you, and I swim with the dive, I should say, with wild dolphins in the same area for the last 30 years, you can feel the sonar hitting your body, and it's actually going right through. So they can see you like a CAT scan. They can see your heart beating and your blood running in your veins, so they get much more information than we do. What does that feel like to sense their sonar moving through you or hitting you, as you say? Uh, um, gosh, it's hard to describe. Like a vibration? Yeah, it's sort of like a... Well, while we're talking, my cell phone went off in my pocket. Uh-huh. You didn't hear it, but it, it, it kind of felt like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, vibration. What about their intelligence and their consciousness? Those are two different things. Uh, there's some debate as to how intelligent dolphins are relative to humans. John Lilly, who was the first dolphin researcher... I've known, uh, believe that dolphins were more intelligent than we are. I've come to believe that they're not more intelligent or less intelligent. They're simply different. And I've come to believe that intelligence is a man-made concept. From a caterpillar's point of view, we're not very intelligent at all. We can't do any of the things they can do. That is such an important point, yeah, really. Yeah, so consciousness is something else. Consciousness, I think they're very 
the porch light is on and somebody is home. I can tell you that. How about talking about what life is like for them when they're being hunted and captured and then trained to perform, for instance, in sequariums or for Swim with the Dolphins programs or other human uses for them? Well, we can only imagine how horrific that is. And, you know, if you were to talk to people in the Alliance of Marine Parks and Aquariums or the American Zoological Society or the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums and so forth, they would tell you that that industry would tell you that these captures are humane and scientific. Having captured more than 100 dolphins myself and, and witnessed many more than that being captured in Taiji, there is no such thing as a humane capture. That's an oxymoron. And so much of our work is trying to get that industry to help stop these captures in Taiji, Japan, and other parts of Japan, because the captures are the economic underpinning of the dolphin slaughter, which takes place every year from September, starts September 1st, and it goes on through March. It's going on right now, as we speak. And that industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. They could step up to the plate and actually do something and stop it, but they won't. So go figure. How did it come about that you first began working with dolphins, and how did you first look upon capturing and training them? Well, when I first started at the Miami Seaquarium, I was a very different person than I am today. Well, I should back up to my first visit to the Seaquarium, which was opening day. Uh, it was Christmas Day, 1955, and it opened up. There were only three dolphinariums in the world. This was the third. First one opened up in St. Augustine, Florida in 1938. Marine Studios, it was called. It's still there. It's called Marine Land today. And then in California, near Los Angeles, Palos Verdes uh, Marine Land opened up. And I don't remember the year, but this aquarium opened up on Christmas Day, 1955. And I was there with my family. I was on a 14-day leave from the Navy. I just got out of boot camp. And when you get out of boot camp, they give you 14 days off before you get shipped out to wherever you're going. I remember standing up next to the, the what they call the main tank, 500,000 gallons. Mind you, this was all new, brand new. and It's pretty run down today, the aquarium, but it was brand new. And the tank was full of 500-pound grouper and 12-foot sawfish and sharks. And, uh, of course, dolphins were in there and the moray eels. And it was just an amazing sight. I never saw anything like that before. And there was a guy walking around on the bottom of the tank with a canvas suit on and a diving helmet. And it looked like it was in slow motion because he's underwater and he's standing, you know, vertical. I had my nose up to the glass watching him passing out fish out of a wire basket to the dolphin. And I said to myself, when I get out of the Navy, I'm going to get that guy's job. And five years later, I did. My first day on the job at the Seaquarium wasn't in the tank, though. Uh, it was actually on the capture boat. I was hired as a diver on the capture boat. And we would go out into Biscayne Bay here in Miami and capture dolphins for other places that were starting to open up and fish and turtles and everything else. 
And eventually I got that job in the tank as a diver and worked my way up to trainer, dolphin trainer. And then the flipper series came along. And this was the first time that dolphins were going to be trained underwater. Historically, dolphins were trained on the surface of the water. People came in, paid $5, and sat in the bleachers and watched stupid dolphin tricks for five bucks. So the filmmakers and uh, NBC made a deal with the Seaquarium that they would film it at the Seaquarium if the Seaquarium would supply the dolphins and a trainer. And so I was chosen. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and that changed my life. That must have been extraordinarily exciting to get that offer. You know, those were wonderful halcyon days. Uh I was as ignorant as I could be for as long as I could be about captivity. Mind you, when I went to work there, I just got out of the five years of the Navy. When, when you're in the military, you're trained to not question authority. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't go and show up on the job and start. You were perfectly positioned. Yeah, I was. And, and, and so capturing dolphins, to me, seemed like a great job. Take us to your experience working closely daily with these dolphins and how your sensitivities increased as you were moving towards that epiphany, the moment where you really had quite an awakening, a change in your understanding of what was going on. When I first started at the Seaquarium, it was an eight-to-five job. You know, you, you go to work in the morning and you go home at night. When the Flipper TV series began, everything changed because uh, if you've ever seen that show, there's a house that's the main set. That's where the family lived. And then Flipper lived right outside in, in the water on the end of the dock. I've been singing the song for days knowing that I'm going to be talking with you. Well, that house was actually where I lived. And I also had a, a house trailer nearby. And so I spent 24 hours a day there pretty much for seven years. And when you live with the dolphins, it's very different than an eight-to-five job. And so you become very close to them and you can understand them somewhat and what they experience. Tell us more about that. What what did you come to understand? Well, I came to understand that dolphins don't belong in captivity, that they are self-aware. Recently, it was proved, scientifically that is, that dolphins are self-aware. What do I mean by self-aware? What I mean is self-aware creatures like the great apes, humans can look in the mirror and we know what we're looking at. And it's been proven now that dolphins are self-aware, but I knew that when I was working on the Flipper TV show because I would take the television set and I had a long extension cord down to the end of the dock and at Friday night at 7.30, I would watch Flipper with Flipper. That's hilarious. Yeah, so, you know, the light bulb went on and the next progression is, well, if they're self-aware, what are they doing in captivity? You're listening to the Living Hero podcast at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and I'm talking with activist, author, and expert in dolphin behavior, Rick O'Barry. I was very conscious of the fact they don't belong in captivity, but I didn't do anything about it. I was lulled into complacency, I suppose, with, uh, well, I was getting paid a lot of money for one thing, and it was a great lifestyle, and... And the show was famous. I mean, all of us kids watched that show. Yeah, in 36 countries, I think, uh, it was popular, and it's still running in some places. 
so yeah, they, you know, I just went along with it until Flipper died, actually, in my arms on uh, the day before Earth Day, 1970, is when it happened. And that's the moment I walked away and never looked back. Well, I did look back. I, did, I shouldn't say I didn't look back. Uh, that's when I did something about it. What can you say about interspecies communication and how some people can really have that with other creatures? Was that what was going on as you lived so closely with them seven years? That's what they were paying me for. That was my job. The film crew was not there very often. They would show up and film scenes and be gone again, pretty much alone. I would say 90% of the time. There was about seven acres, had a fence around it, and the public was kept away. So I lived pretty much in isolation with the dolphin at that flipper set. And the script would arrive at the front office. I'd get a batch of scripts for the upcoming shows. And the parts that Flipper was involved in, I would study. And, you know, it would, it would say Flipper dives down, uh, picks up a conch shell, brings it to the dock and drops it off, um, picks up the rope and takes it over to the boat or something like that. And I had to communicate that somehow to the dolphin and and make it happen, turn it into a reality. Yeah. So action. that is communication. Dolphins have saved the lives of people. We know that throughout history. We never heard of another wild animal coming out of the jungle and saving the life of a human. But there are many stories of dolphins doing that. That's communication. That is communication. That is altruism. So, uh, yeah, communication can be different things. And would the uh, flipper dolphins be able to communicate back to you? What means did they have to communicate their position? Body language. Uh-huh. That's how they communicate with one another, I think. When dolphins are in the wild and they approach a group approaches another pod, they're using sound up until the point where they can see one another. Then I believe they're using body language. It's very difficult to read dolphin's body language. Most animals, you can look at their face, dogs, uh, they you can read their body language because their face changes mm-hmm. and it's telling you something. With dolphins, it's more difficult because it's a fixed, pretty much, face or smile. Mm-hmm. And they're so sleek. Yeah. And they, they look pretty much alike if you don't know them. If you, you know, like the five flipper dolphins, for example, they were chosen out of a hundred in this game day. We captured over a hundred to find five that looked pretty similar, that didn't have any shark scars on them or other blemishes, and they could be photographed and you could uh, substitute one for the other. Yeah, good understudies. Yeah, although we never did that. We we actually used one or two, the whole... Well, I was on the payroll for seven years, although the show was filmed for four years. I was on for a year before and two years afterwards. So we used Kathy and Susie most of the time. The first year was Susie and then Kathy almost exclusively after that. We didn't really need all of those dolphins. So it was a gender lie, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, the character was a, a male flipper always referred to as he, but they were actually females. So then Kathy died. Please take us into that day, that experience. What happened? I had left. The show was over, and I didn't want anything more to do with captivity, so I left. Went to India for a while. 
But then I came back to Coconut Grove, where I live, and I got a call from the manager saying, Kathy's not doing very well, you better come out. And I went out there on my bicycle, went to the tank where I knew she was. It was a steel tank about the size of a small living room. And there she was on the surface of the water. She, her skin was black from the sun. There was no shade there. And uh, she swam into my arms and looked me right in the eye, took a breath of air, and that was it. Never took another breath. And I held her there for some time, and I let her go, and she sank to the bottom of the tank, landing on her underside. And I watched that. Very clear water. I could look down and see her at the bottom. I, I, was, I was shocked. I didn't know what was going on. And she was there quite a while, so I leaped in the tank, went to the bottom, and got her to the surface. And with my knee, I tried to give her artificial respiration, uh, put my thumb down her blowhole, and but she was gone already. Uh-huh. And, uh, and that was it. That that changed everything for me. I was outraged, and uh, the next day was Earth Day, 1970. I found myself across the Gulf Stream in Bimini, in the Bahamas Islands, at the Lerner Marine Laboratory, trying to free a dolphin from that facility, which I captured. We actually brought several dolphins there, and there was only one still alive. And, and uh yeah, I was just outraged and I with Kathy's death and I was gonna free every captive dolphin that I could, meaning dolphins that were in cages. I could at least get to the cage and cut the fence. At least I thought I could in Bimini, but it didn't work. Um long story short, I was in jail for a week. That was almost forty years ago and released many dolphins since then. Uh, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Colombia, Brazil, Haiti, different places rescued them, some overtly and some covertly. So you really formed a mission, in a sense, on an emotional basis. Is it true that in that experience with Kathy, you realized that her her death had some kind of an emotional basis on her part? Yeah. Uh, I mean, nothing was planned. When I went to Bimini to do this, it was it was just reacting. It, it was there was no plan. But you said you thought she was depressed, and that that hasn't come across yet. That she wasn't, you know, ill with some kind of a disease depression. or something. I call it captive dolphin depression syndrome. Okay. And and you could see it today if you went to the Miami Sea Aquarium and and went to the tank where. Lolita is, for example, the orca that's in isolation. Is that so? That was over. They they get everybody out of the theater because they don't want you to see this captive dolphin depression syndrome. They lay uh, on the surface of the water or sometimes on the bottom of the tank just looking at the wall. There's nothing to do. There's absolutely nothing to do in that tank and uh, other than the show, which is boring. They do it five times a day or whatever it is, seven days a week exactly the same it's boring for the trainers and so yeah they they just don't do well in captivity that's the bottom line they they don't belong in captivity any more than people do sort of a form of prison it is a prison that's exactly what it is you know they're institutionalized the big lie is somehow this 
has to do with conservation, education, and research. That's what they're selling you. That's the big lie, and that's one of the reasons I left that industry. Keep in mind, I could have stayed with that industry. I mean, I could today start my own dolphin swim program somewhere in the Caribbean and be making $5 million a year if I wanted to. There's nothing stopping me from doing that. Your conscience is... I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. And that's why I walked away from that industry. To be successful, you have to become a professional liar. You have to lie to the public every day, to the media, and to yourself. Right. It's ironic. You know, it's saying the opposite of what it is. It it is. It, It is the opposite. It's the absolute opposite of what really takes place. I mean, you only have to look at Japan to prove that. Let's go on to Japan and the present. Japan has 50 dolphin areas. Can you imagine? 50. That's Japan's the size of California, and it has 50 dolphin areas. And the theory is if we display the dolphins, we're going to sensitize the public, and they will protect them. Well, Japan is proof that that is the big lie. I mean... Here you have the largest slaughter of dolphins in the world going on, right under their nose. And, you know, 50 dolphinariums translates into hundreds of millions of people who have been educated and are now going to protect the dolphins. Well, where are they? I was just at the Cove in Japan, and I didn't find one person trying to protect them. Let's assume that those listening don't necessarily know what happens there. What's going on? They can see what goes on there by going to our website and looking at the trailer. And I, it, it's hard for me to describe it. They can see it. Just go to savejapandolphins.org and look at the trailer. Okay. It, it is a extremely violent, well, it's a schizophrenic cove. There's a cove there. Sometimes it's the most peaceful, tranquil spot in the world. And within minutes, it can turn into the, the exact opposite. It can be blood red, and uh, but you know I don't want to scare people away from seeing this movie. Have you seen it? Oh yes, more than once. Well, and if you'll permit me, I would just tell the listeners that using sound, the dolphins and uh, mass are herded into this protected cove and trapped in there, so that uh, certain ones can be selected out for dolphin shows, and those. Dolphins um, fetch a hefty price of what is it? Over a hundred thousand dollars, hundred fifty-four thousand dollars, hundred fifty-four thousand dollars a piece, yeah. and then the rest of them are slaughtered. And why are they slaughtered? What what's the uh, rationale for that? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Uh, using the dolphin hunter's own uh, words, uh, pest control. And when they told me that, I realized overfishing. That's the real problem, overfishing. They've overfished to the point where they're pointing their finger to the dolphin and, you know, uh, they're blaming the dolphin when, in fact, they need to look in the mirror. Hmm. It's a worldwide problem, overfishing. They don't want to share the small fish with the dolphins who rely on those small fish to stay alive. Exactly. It's, it's kill the competition. That's what's happening. That's one reason. Another is some people eat the meat. Not many people, very few people in Japan ever. Only 1% of the Japanese population have even eaten whale meat. 1%. 
and a very, very small uh, number of that 1% eat dolphin meat. They so, serve up the whale meat at the aquariums, don't they? Well, they do in Taiji. You can actually watch the dolphin show and eat a dolphin at the same time. It's so bizarre. You have a very strong point in the toxicity of the dolphin meat because of the levels of mercury they're exposed to in their diet. Do you want to tell us more about the details of that? I started testing the dolphin meat. Well, let me just back up. The fishermen in Taiji called me the cultural imperialist. You know, they eat dolphin. We eat cows, pigs, and chickens, and so forth. And... uh and, and they like to keep that argument going because they can win that argument. So they gave the dolphin meat to the school system for free for the school lunch program in order to keep that cultural argument going. And I tested the dolphin meat, and it turns out that it's highly contaminated in mercury. And a couple of uh, councilmen tested it themselves. They didn't believe me. And as a result of those tests, they took the dolphin meat out of the school system, and they took it out for a very good reason. It's poison. What this means to me is that really from right down to the smallest creatures that are then eaten by the larger ones that we're looking at is that our waters are mercury contaminated. Exactly, exactly. Menthol mercury, and it comes from coal, coal-fired plants. Every time we turn the lights on, we have to get that energy from somewhere. And it's coming from coal-fired plants. And what happens is the coal is sending this toxic waste into the air, and it lands in the ocean, is transformed into menthol mercury. It enters the food chain. And, of course, the dolphins are on the top of the food chain, so they have the most mercury in their system. But it's not just the dolphin. It's tuna. It's swordfish. Any big fish. And in lower quantities, the the very fish that the Japanese are killing the dolphins to to get a bigger catch of for themselves, these fish also have mercury contamination, maybe in lower quantities, but it, there it is. Yeah, it's a worldwide problem. It's not a Japanese problem. There's a new coal-fired plant going online every week in China, and so the problem is getting worse. We We need to get rid of these coal-fired plants and start using solar energy, wind energy, some other form of energy that doesn't contaminate the oceans. They are indeed toxic in many places, especially in Japan. You can find salmon in Alaska that's not toxic or fish from the Antarctic. The whales there are not contaminated, but in most places they are. Right off the coast of Florida here, the dolphins would be as contaminated as the dolphins in Japan. It's a huge problem, and people don't know about it. No, they don't, and, and this is just another example of how everything is connected, you know, that, that this toxicity in the ocean is coming about through something that's happening on the land and going into the air, and then that goes into the water, that goes into the flesh, that goes into the mouths of children and people. Especially children, they are the most vulnerable. Sure. Growing, yep. And their body mass is so much smaller. Yep. You're listening to the Living Hero podcast at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and our guest is Rick O'Barry, star of this year's Academy Award winning documentary, The Cove. 
Let's spend some time talking about your activism, you know, how you got active in a reactionary way just after Kathy died. But as you said, that was 40 years ago. So what forms has your work taken uh, as an activist in dedication to helping protect and liberate dolphins? Well, I've spent a lot of time just trying to educate people, you know, going to schools and so forth, and uh, but also rescuing dolphins from places and, and protesting. None of this is planned. It's usually a phone call. So somebody would call and say, hey, there's a dolphin in trouble here, and I don't, you know, it's in Haiti, and uh, there's six dolphins in a cage. Can you come over and help us? How do you fund that kind of work? Well, I did it myself. Wow. Uh, I have a couple of books that help. Today I work for Earth Island Institute, and they have an international marine mammal program, so I work for them. And it's much easier because I actually have a paycheck now. Um, and so staff, what, staff to help do all the communications work. Yeah, that's what it is. You know, and, and uh, Dave Brower, who's a legendary environmentalist, he started Earth Island Institute, and his idea was hire activists, real activists, and just get out of their way. And, man, I found a home there because that, that, they just leave me alone and let me go do what I have to do to you know, protect dolphins. And it's just great. Yeah, that is fantastic. So I've read on your site that one of the things you've been able to do at times is to rehabilitate dolphins that you're liberating to go back and live in the wild. What's happening in a dolphin when they're sort of being damaged by by being in captivity, and before that point, what does it take to kind of reintroduce them to the wild? Do you know what I'm asking? Yeah, and uh, there is no pat answer. All dolphins are different in captivity. In the wild, they're somewhat similar. But, in, for example, the dolphins in the U.S. Navy, dolphins of war program, uh, especially those that are born there, they're very different than a dolphin in Haiti that was just captured and been in captivity for three months. The two are worlds apart, and so there is no method. The ones in Haiti, you can just take the fence down, and they'll be fine. I can show you dolphins in Europe that are born inside of a building. They have never seen the sky. They think that the roof is the sky. They've never seen a live fish before. They have no idea what the tide is or the currents or the natural rhythms of the sea. These are freaks that we've created for our amusement. And, uh, well, rehabilitating them and releasing them back into the wild is not even the right language because they've never seen the ocean. They don't know what the ocean is. Each one that we've released is a special case, and some of them were not candidates to be released into the wild. Kind of like here, I'm in Miami. You know, there are institutions here where people are, and if I went to the institution and took somebody out of the institution and put them in the streets of New York from Miami, they'd probably get hit by a bus. Yeah. And, and so it is true with dolphins. They're all different. Their experiences are different. And uh, there's not one method. You have to live with them. You have to literally live, move in with them in a... That's what I do. I get a tent, I move in, and I watch them. I watch them, and I watch them, and I read their body language. And I can tell you in about three months whether they can be released or not. Maybe the place that they were captured has completely changed since they were captured. So taking them back to their home range, one place comes to mind in Colombia where there are hundreds of nets left out overnight, and you couldn't release a dolphin there. They would 
get wrapped up and, and be killed. So, but you can see this. There's a, a website called Dolphin Project, not the Dolphin Project, just Dolphin Project, and you can, if you look around there, you'll see how we do it. And there's protocol that I've written, and it's taken years to write that, and I'm still writing it. And you can see in detail how to release a captive dolphin. Okay, well, I'll certainly include your links uh, on my site where people come to listen to the interview. Now, as an activist, what have you learned works best and what really hasn't worked to uh, awaken people and mobilize them to help you in your work on behalf of the dolphins? What's been most effective? The most important thing, and I think it's the thing that separates me from other activists, is showing up. That's what I do. I show up. And had I not shown up in Taiji, the cove never would have been made, for example. Or if I didn't show up in Guatemala, Nicaragua, Colombia, Brazil, Haiti, those dolphins that we freed there would have never been freed. So I don't always know what I'm doing. It's not like I know what I'm doing. I, I show up, and what I have to do is usually made known to me just before I do it. In other words, it's not a, it's not planned. Uh, you have to figure things out while you're there. And just have that willingness to do whatever's necessary. Yeah. Sometimes it's done covertly. Other times... It's a planned, you know, operation where, for example, there was a dolphin in uh, in Colombia. Stefania was her name. And we moved her to a remote island. And it, it, we, my wife and I, Helena, we put a tent up. When I say remote island, this island is so small, it takes 958 steps to walk completely around it at low tide. Mm. And we lived there with Stefania for six months. And when it rained, we were we had water. And when we caught a fish, we were able to eat. And you're living day by day. And and this particular dolphin, Stefania, as it turned out, was not a candidate to be released. I questioned her mental health shortly after moving in with her. You know, you look at these dolphins, and and you and you, you, you test their blood and and. They look healthy. They look perfectly fine. But nobody ever questions their mental health. And some of these creatures have been through um, some pretty horrific experiences. I mean, if I had experienced what Stefania experienced, I'd probably be stark raving mad. And she was mad. And she did want to be released. Eventually, there was no fence around her, but she she wouldn't leave. She wanted room service. So we had to take her somewhere where there was a uh, natural sea pen, and she's still there today. There's no gate on her pen. She comes and goes, but she's not going to go hunting anymore. She wants room service. You have to be a psychiatrist, you know, and you have to be a butler, and you have to do all these different things. You want to tell us some about your experience in making The Cove and working with that team? It's a fabulous movie, everybody. It's it's just so well done. What a great documentary. Very creatively done, and also it's really heart-thumping. You did covert operations there, so, so please just tell us how it was for you making the movie. The thing that was on my mind all the time, even before the film company contacted me was, how do we get this information to the Japanese people? They don't have the information. 
that's because there's a, a blackout on all whale and dolphin stories in Japan. And so the idea was, let's get this in front of the Japanese people, which still hasn't happened. There's 126 million people in Japan who have not seen this movie, and the government is doing its best to make sure they don't see it. So that's the real challenge. So to answer your question, what, what was it like? It was very dangerous. Uh, the police were there all the time. The fishermen are in the cove with spears and hooks and knives, and you have to sneak in right under their nose and film what they're doing and try to get it in front of the Japanese people. Now, it's been seen around the world in many countries. The most popular television show in Japan is the American Academy Awards. So I am just thrilled about that. And the government is going to have a public relations nightmare. Right. What a coup. Yeah. So the thing is, when I first saw what happened in, in the cove many years ago, I didn't know what to do. And so I went to my Japanese colleagues at Elsa Nature Conservancy, the oldest environmental group over there. And they said, Gaiatsu. Gaiatsu, well, G-A-I-A-T-S-U. Gaiatsu literally translates into external pressure. And that's the thing. Gaiatsu is the thing that's brought about more change in Japan than anything else. And so, Gaiatsu means bring the media over here. And so, I made my own little film called Welcome to Taiji. Uh, not for public consumption, but for the media. And I would give it to CNN, the BBC, and whoever else. And, and they would come and expose this. The filmmaker, Louis Sahoyas, the director, really his film, he called one day. He had just seen this video, Welcome to Taiji, in San Diego. And he said, can I follow you around with my camera? I said, well, sure. That's why I made this. I didn't know it at the time because I said, look, I'm leaving tomorrow. I was in Miami and he was in San Diego. I said, I'm going back to Japan tomorrow. And he said, well, I'll meet you there. And I didn't know it until recently, but when he hung up the phone, he took a three-day crash course on how to make a movie. He had never uh-huh. made a movie. Talk about dedication. He was also really emotionally aroused by what was going on. Yeah, and he still is. He still is passionate. And the Oceanic Preservation Society, the group that he founded with the Jim Clark, who financed the film. Jim Clark started Netscape and Healthscape, and he's a billionaire who has a passion for the ocean, and he financed this film. And so they were going to do a television series, and this was going to be the first episode. And after they saw what they had, they decided, wow, this is a feature film. It's not a television show. So that should be encouraging to your listeners that are thinking about being documentary filmmaker. Here's a guy who never made a film before in his life. The first time up to bat, he knocks it out of the ballpark. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's so well done. And, you're, and you're, you're, your listener shouldn't be afraid to go see it. People are afraid to see it because they think they know what it's about, uh, and they don't, really. It's really about a lot of things. The Cove is not just about dolphins being slaughtered. It's really a, a, a complicated story, and I think it's a story that will be around forever, just like uh, Rachel Carson's uh, Silent Spring. It's one of those. Yeah. It's a different kind of filmmaking, for one thing. And you know it's won every award 
that you could possibly win. Every audience award and director's award and writer's award. And those awards are given for entertainment value. So your audience shouldn't be afraid to see it. Yeah. I see the story and what your work is all about as emblematic. It's symbolic of a lot of issues of struggle between those people who are sensitive to certain facts and those who are insensitive. Because as you're saying, once people know, most people are sensitive and get behind causes. But there are all these power issues, who is going to get access and how things are going to be covered up. There's just so much of that. In in contemporary industrial society, these issues and struggles um, are really intensifying, it seems to me, and becoming more numerous. Would you agree that what's discussed in the Cove and what your work is about um, has really far-reaching implications about the whole power structure of this globalized industrial society? Absolutely. I think the Cove exposes a lot of that. So what do you think, Rick? What do you think it's going to take for goodness to prevail? Well, in Japan, you know, I'm just focused in on that one cove. I'm just, it's the size of a football field. I'm like a monomaniac in that regard. You know, I can't, we can't solve the bigger problems, mercury issue, contaminating the oceans and uh, stopping the slaughter all over the world. If we can't shut down that one cove, how can we do the bigger thing, solve these bigger problems? So I'm staying focused on that. And I think that it will be abolished and... I think the dolphin slaughter in Japan will be abolished, but it won't be abolished for food culture issues or cruelty issues probably won't shut it down. It will be shut down because the consumers, the people in Japan who see the movie, will not buy the product anymore. And that includes whale meat. A lot of the whale meat that we tested in Tokyo is counterfeit. It's actually horse meat or contaminated dolphin meat. And the consumers are not going to buy it anymore. They know that information. So it's really important to get this film out in Japan. The consumers are going to solve the problem, not the government. Governments protect corporations, not people and other animals. How can we help you? How can those of us listening and getting a hold of this information? So glad you asked. Yeah, there is things anybody and everybody can do. One of the things that anybody can do and it sounds very simplistic, but it's, it is the solution to the dolphin captivity issue, is simply don't buy a ticket. Don't buy a ticket for a captive dolphin show. That's based on supply and demand like any other product. And if people stop buying tickets, that multi-billion dollar industry is going to dry up. So that's one thing. Another thing people can do is go to our website and take action. That's SaveJapanDolphins, one word, dot O-R-G. And all the information is there. You can sign the petition. We're trying to get a million signatures to President Obama, and we're getting close to that. we got like 600,000 so far. Congratulations. That's excellent. We want people to come to the Cove September 1st, 2010. We're going to try and get 1,000 people in this town. So if you've never been to Japan and you're thinking about taking a vacation this summer, Think about coming to Japan for that vacation. It's actually a very, very beautiful place, Taiji. I don't know if 
you're familiar with Big Sur, the coastline of Big Sur, California. But Taiji is more beautiful than that. It's hard to believe. It's absolutely breathtakingly beautiful coastline, and people are very friendly. There's 3,444 people in Taiji. I would say 3,400 of them are not involved in killing dolphins, the vast majority of them. There's only 13 small boats that are doing this, two men in each boat. That's 26 guys. So it's not the whole town of Taiji. People shouldn't be afraid of Taiji. So the information on how to get to Taiji, September 1st, 2010, will be at our website, SaveJapanDolphin.org. That, that's what's going to shut it down, is, is people showing up there and people taking action. That will be a very newsworthy demonstration. Yeah, especially if celebrities show up. Celebrities uh, have a lot of power in Japan. When we were at Sundance, I met Sting and his wife, Trudy, were in the audience and wanted to help, and so I'm going to invite them. Ben Stiller has been helping us all along. He and I did the Larry King show. I'm hoping Ben will come to Taiji in September, and Yoko Ono's expressed an interest. She's on tour right now in Japan with an, an album. But we're going to try and get some celebrities there and just ordinary people and a lot of Japanese people. That'll have a huge impact. It's going to happen. Excellent work. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks. Appreciate it. Special thanks for today's program go to audio engineer Charles de Montebello of CDM Studios, New York. Living Hero is a production of In This Regard, a fiscally sponsored project of Fractured Atlas, which serves as our nonprofit umbrella. We receive funding and in-kind contributions from the Puffin Foundation and from listeners like you. Your contributions are tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. Please help us continue to offer and grow this program. To access our archive of interviews, to post your comments, and to help us fund future programs, visit us at livinghero.com. Thanks for listening.